I thought it was riding, didn't you? <laughs> Welcome to our newest program of the Local Food Roundup. I'm Ann Bowes. And I'm Chris LaPaglia. We're here to bring you our ongoing series of news, views, and interviews about local food here in the Palouse. I'm here on the phone with Andrew Duffin, author of the book Plowed Under. Duffin did his graduate studies over at Wazoo and currently is a writer and editor for the U.S. Department of Transportation. While he was here, he taught full-time. He also wrote his book, Plowed Under. And in that book, he tells the story of the Palouse land from its geological beginning to the present day. He dives into a lot of significant developments that came about in the late 19th century and the evolution of agriculture up into the 21st century. And I feel lucky to be able to interview him today as he has a perspective that we're often lacking when discussing local food here on the Palouse. So, welcome, Andrew. It's nice to have you here. Well, thanks, Anne. It's, it's good to be here. Um, let's just start off talking about the origin of the unique landscape that's, that's the Palouse. It's unique. It's not like other places. Yeah, it's, it's visually arresting, that's for sure. Um, when I was uh, coming to WSU to, to start my Ph.D. program, um, I've lived all over the place, but right before WSU, I was in the state of Connecticut, of all places. And I was introduced to the Palouse um, coming uh, up out of the Lewiston grade, um, for, you know, first of all, experiencing the heat of Lewiston, <laughs> and then the grade, which just won't stop. I mean, I had I, never seen the Palouse before in person. And then, boom, you hit the plateau, and like, there's just this sea of hills, mm-hmm. endless. And it definitely piqued my interest. And when I was uh, searching around for a dissertation topic, I didn't have much money, and I needed to study something that was local, and why not start right at my feet? And so I did. And so the first thing that I, that I did when I embarked on my research was, was figure out where all this stuff came from. Where did the dirt come from? Why, is it, um, why do we have this landscape? Why is it not in adjacent regions? And as it turns out, uh, the Missoula floods had a great deal to do with it. And many of your listeners probably already know the basic outlines of the Missoula flood story. Um, but in a, in a nutshell, toward the end of the last ice age, so at around twelve to 16,000 years ago, in other words, not that long ago, geologically speaking, there was a, a giant ice dam in the Clark Fork River that dammed up a whole lot of water in northwestern Montana, and it was known as Glacial Lake Missoula. The planet warms much more slowly than it is today, but it was warming up. And at some point, around 16,000 years ago, this dam failed. Now, it was impounding water volume the size of Lake Erie and Lake Ontario combined. And it all comes rushing out of there, across the Rockies, into the Spokane Plain, the Rastrum Prairie, going on basically, at that point, a southwest orientation. It's following gravity. The the enormity of these, okay. it's hard to know exactly how fast, um, you know, at least 50 feet high walls of water. Um, but 
it was a geologic near miss for the Palouse. It went around the Palouse, uh, which at that time didn't have the hills that we know of today. But still, the elevation, such as it, as it was at the time, was higher than the surrounding area, and it went around it rather than over it. Well, all this water was trying to get to the Pacific, and it was impounded temporarily around uh, Wallula Gap, um, which is basically the area between, say, Walla Walla and the Tri-Cities. Okay. At that point, it, it's going to punch out the Columbia Gorge. It's, gonna, it's doing that, too. It's doing a lot of, a lot of things. But it's, uh, water gets uh, stopped up there. It's a, it's a plug. It's, a, it's something it has got to get through. But that, that takes even longer. While that's happening, a whole lot of that sediment settles down. And the water eventually goes out, but the sediment stays there. So there's all this huge amount of sediment from these floods that builds up around Wallula Gap. Then prevailing winds pick that stuff up, carry it to the north and to the east, deposits it on the Palouse. Now, the, the first flood was undoubtedly the, the most dramatic and uh, catastrophic, if you will. But there were at least 85 of these flooding events that deposited water in the Columbia Basin, prevailing winds. And, and so what the... What the Palouse was and is, is these ancient sand dunes that over time morphed into these hills. Significance of that for agriculture today is that um, always these, these glacially fed farmlands are extremely fertile. And this stuff was, but it, and it was covered in, in bunch grasses, which exists in small pockets today, but as we all know, I mean, that's largely an artifact of the past. People try to recreate them. Um, but it's, we have a hard time imagining what the pre-contact Palouse actually looked like because, uh, we don't have any photos. No. We have a few from around Spokane, but if you can find a, a, uh, a picture of the Palouse from say, you know, the 1860s and it would be a very poorly produced print. Um, I, I haven't seen it yet. I mean, I <laughs> scoured the archives trying to do just that. But it's also very prone to erosion because it's very light. Right. And that's, that's the, the central conundrum that we have today. As we came into the modern era, this wasn't that long ago. You, you've described up until, um, well, basically up until the natives settled it. And, and that was for quite some time, but it remained pretty stable at that point. It did. In... In 1859, the territorial governor of Washington Territory, Isaac Stevens, um, when back when Washington was still considered part of Oregon, he did a, a big, huge survey to figure out you know, where settlement's going to happen, where, where can you put railroads down. And he observed the Palouse Indians in a camp in present-day Moscow. And, he surmi- and it was during springtime, and the camps were, were in bloom. And they, that's when they harvested them uh, because they could be so easily identified because of the bright blue flower. And it, he surmised that they were digging up and producing so much camas that they could work four days and provide enough foodstuffs to let, let them survive for an entire year. That, that's, that's a, a veritable Garden of Eden. But at that point, the Europeans came in, and that's when they really cleared out the natives about that time, wasn't it? Yeah, that happened, well, a series of wars 
uh, off and on with various tribes of the inland northwest in the 1850s and 60s. And yes, um, the the Palouse uh, ceased to exist as a distinct tribe. They didn't have the numbers of the Nez Perce, the numbers of the Yakima and other big uh, northwest tribes, the Spokane, uh, the Coeur d'Alene's, take well to trampling. Unlike in the short grass prairies of uh, the Great Plains states with bison all over them, those grasses bounce back. Bunch grasses don't come back once they've been stomped on by a huge animal. We're up to the 1850s, 1870s. That's when the Europeans came in and started doing, they had homesteading, and they got right into working the land. They did. And as with a lot of settlement in the West, it started with ranching. And the, the, the Appaloosa horse was quickly displaced, along with the Palouse Indians, by, by Europeans, white Europeans, and cattle. These cattle were uh, there for the markets provided by mining camps in Idaho and by, um, by army troops that were stationed throughout the inland northwest. And there was, I'm sure, some experimentation with, with farming, but, um, but with, the, with the transiency of, of those, both of those groups, miners and, and soldiers, um, not so many people put down stakes until a few tried in the late 1860s, up on, just up, up the grade from Lewiston, where I first encountered the Palouse. There's the first recorded actual homestead, 1868, a guy named George Pangburn, and he, he, pl- he plowed up some fields. And he, he grew a variety of crops, and, and wheat was the most obvious one. Corn wasn't going to work because it was too dry. Right. Um, and there was no way to really irrigate it at that time. And um, and it worked. And when word of mouth spreads, plus the fact, remember, the overall context, if you want to be a farmer in the U.S., you say you're in, the, in a Midwestern city or on the East Coast, or you're still in Europe, and you want to make a claim of your own, uh, the American Midwest is uh, pretty well all settled up. And you have to have quite a bit of capital to even get into that conversation to start a farm. Well, that means that you're going to start looking at uh, lands that are further away and maybe considered submarginal. And people considered the Palouse in 1850 to be kind of dry, dusty wasteland. Yeah, it's got these bunch grasses, and you can graze on it, but farm it? No. Well, a few people tried, and it worked. The first people who did stayed in the lower-lying areas. They didn't, want, they didn't try anything on the hills. They didn't think it'd work. They didn't have the equipment to make it work, and, but they, they did well growing small grains mm-hmm. in the low-lying areas. And then, you know, little by slowly, they, they tried the hills, and what do you know, wheat crops like they couldn't believe. Yeah. Weather that you could set your watch by in terms of precipitation, sunshine. I mean, the, I, the Palouse, agriculturally, has never experienced a weather-related crop failure. I, I've not heard of any other region of the country that could make that claim. There was there was a lot of mixed agriculture, and there were there were plenty of sheep, and and they loved the bunch grass. Yeah, I, I keep sheep. So yeah. it's just that they, the bunch grasses couldn't rebound is all. So that that was they were on borrowed time as soon as those four hooved animals stepped out mm-hmm. onto the prairie. That um, the Palouse prairie grasses were on borrowed time. 
So as we go through, and we've got the Europeans coming in, you've written about the railroads. And I think it's interesting, you have this historical perspective. You understand the um, infrastructure set up as far as the railroads, the boom and bust of that. And you're working for the Department of Transportation now. So, yeah, so you're dealing with that infrastructure on a modern level. But they came in, they didn't initially have a way to ship that out. But as time went on, right. the railroad situation changed, and you talk about the boom and bust. Well, mostly boom. Um, I mean, yes, railroads would come and go. Profit margins were pretty thin. Um, and so, yeah, then they, they would fail. But, hey, you, the, if, if a railroad fails, they've already laid the tracks. That's so right. some, some of their operator can come in and, and buy up some cheap capital and continue to run uh, railroads. Um, but to give you an idea about... Um, how important the Inland Northwest was, what kind of a, a hub Spokane was. 1905, Spokane had five transcontinental rail lines go through that city. So I guess one of the main points in my book is that Palouse agriculture may have started out modestly for a historical nanosecond, and then as soon as it could, got real big real fast. And it did. And when it got big, um, I am jumping a little bit ahead, but there was the World War, um, First World War. Right. And that was a boom for this area. It was. They, um, farmers saw their incomes double within six months. I mean, the, 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 price of, the price of wheat that they were getting uh, after 1914 just exploded. And it was... It was uh, mostly because Europe could no longer feed itself because, well, because its, its farm fields were now killing fields. And because so many of their young men could no longer work on farms, that, um, that, their, that European agriculture went completely dormant very, very quickly. And moreover, it was extremely difficult to ship goods across the Atlantic because of the threat of German U-boats. So... All that meant there was this great constriction of supply in Europe. And, and so whatever you could get out of North America in terms of any kind of good um, became that much more valuable because of what was going on in Europe. And remember, the United States doesn't get into Second World War until 1917. So the, the U.S. had a, a very late and somewhat limited involvement in the war. So in other words, that most of, of its human capital could still work on farms of the northwest and then as time progressed if i'm you know i i love the way you lay it out in your book you know after the war then you had this this market that was doing very well right mm-hmm. up into the depression years but they started seeing the erosion oh yeah erosion had had always been there and it, it goes back to the geology because the soil is so young and it's so light the geologic term for blue soil is called lust. And erosion is very noticeable even in the late 19th century. Gets to be a bigger and bigger problem as the machines that work to pollute get bigger and more powerful. We get caterpillar crawlers, basically uh, a bulldozer mm-hmm. that pulls a plow in the 1920s. They're diesel powered. They've got low end torque. They can pull much bigger and heavier discs and seed drills. And as a result as well, their harvesting machinery is going to improve, and which had deleterious effects on erosion. There was a there was a study done 
in the in the late 1970s by the USDA that kept track of erosion over the over the years and over the decades essentially and going back to the 1940s and they estimated that on the average acre of polluted land it lost nine tons of soil per acre wow. per year. Now that's that's mm-hmm. pretty incredible. Where's all that stuff going? Well, <laughs> Paradise Creek, mm-hmm. Palouse River, and and today it's it's impounded behind the various dams on the Lower Snake, which they then have to dredge out. But as far as the the effect on farming, people were worried, rightly so. Hey, we're not going to be able to grow anything if uh, our topsoil keeps on washing away. So erosion is on a lot of people's minds. Even though with the Great Plains, it's wind erosion and Palouse, it's it's water erosion. And a lot of the reasons, another big reason why the Palouse was so susceptible was that farmers kept so many acres fallow. Um, they understood, and it's not just let your land sit for a year or more. It's you let it sit, but then you continuously plow it up to make sure that you keep the weeds down. In other words, it's all exposed. So the rain that does fall on the Palouse has an incredibly erosive effect right. on the top. And they weren't doing cover crops or anything. They were just... Just plowing it and leaving it. No, they they well some I shouldn't say no. Yes, in some cases they did. They understood that if they planted some alfalfa, uh, if they planted some peas, that it would restore some of the nitrogen being okay. lost in the soil. But in any kind of comprehensive way, there's there's no real cover crop program until the 1930s okay. and 40s. That's when that begins, and it begins with the Depression era New Deal programs where farmers being paid not to plant crops, but instead mm-hmm. move it to something else. Just not, just don't plant on it. And they would be paid a portion of what the land would have, uh, would have produced, uh-huh. according to estimates. So farmers right, made but out. there were uh, lean years ahead, if I'm right. There were, and 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 the depression was really bad in the Palouse. Don't get me wrong, but it just it was nothing like other parts of the country. Okay. Grain prices did fall. Some farmers mm-hmm. went out of business. But uh, but the Palouse, it seems to me, to this historian, to have had less of an impact there when compared to other, other agricultural regions. And I remember uh, reading something, it was a, in the Depression years, people would be able to sell bacon, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, and I can't find it here right now, but people were able to sell their, their props, their eggs, bacon, chickens, and lards, so there was obviously That's an right. economy of some sort. And there was. Um, there was a renewed interest in more mixed agriculture simply as a means to get by, to get through the Depression. There were newspapers who said, who encouraged farmers, they said, hey, farmers, why don't you go back to the old ways and why don't you figure out a way to market some chickens and eggs and sheep and maybe maybe a, how about a fruit orchard? And they did that. But as soon as they were out of trouble financially, Nope, completely abandoned. You have to think in terms of economies of scale. But there's there's something else, too, that is part of the financial situation, the international trade situation, and the environmental situation, and that's the explosion of post-war farm chemicals. And I was wondering if I could get into that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. So there, there are three main ones that I focused on in the book, and they were all devised before, during the war, but they they come into common usage for 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 um, for civilian use after World War II. It's uh, it's 2,4-D, 
which is an herbicide. It kills broadleaf weeds. It was used to as a defoliant in jungles of the South Pacific during World War II. Right. That was a tremendous game changer in terms of going after the weeds that would be in wheat fields. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the most important one is anhydrous ammonia, which is which is a, a liquefied gas. And we all we all see it today. It's, a, it's another piece of equipment farmers have to buy, by the mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, but to get um, to get machinery to pump this stuff into the ground, anhydrous ammonia is eighty two percent nitrogen. And it's basically what made the McGregor Corporation the, the giant ag behemoth that it is today. And um, it, it gives the land a charge of nutrients that have been lost to years and years of erosion. You can endure nine tons of soil loss per acre per year and you get rid of all that organic matter. You get rid of the blue-green algae that naturally makes nitrogen if you've got this stuff in hydrous ammonia. It works like magic. That and the pesticide DDT uh, to kill bugs. Kills bugs dead, as they used to say. <laughs> and what do you know? The, this trio of farm chemicals makes uh, produce cropland yields go up 100, sometimes 200%. This is happening in the late 40s and early 1950s. And it's a boom. And, and it just goes to the enduring situation of environmental problems being mediated by technological advances. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that and it's the basis of my book that really erosion in, in a big ag sense, in an agribusiness sense, erosion doesn't matter. Now, it does for a whole lot of other reasons, but erosion is something that you can deal with because you've got ways to make the the land flourish anyway. That's not going to go away anytime soon. So what are the solutions going forward? It's it's going to be a hard sell. I'd say it's politically impossible in part because of the of the very nature of uh, farm runoff. And that's what we're really talking about here is what winds up in the waters of the Palouse. When I was teaching in Pullman, before my class, I would get an, a small empty plastic bottle go down to the Paradise Creek, fill it up, mm-hmm. bring it to class, put it on the table, say, and tell them where I got it, and dare one of my students to drink it. Thankfully, I did not have any takers. But can you imagine, really, no, you, you, would, you would recoil from the mere thought right away. Of course you can't. You, you don't know what's in there. Actually, you do. That's even worse. Okay. Um, but what can be done about it? The problem with agricultural runoff is that it falls under the category category of what what's called non-point pollution sources. And I think a lot of your listeners will understand what it is, but point source pollution is pollution that, that yes, comes from one source. Say, a factory that has a pipe that goes into a stream, goes into the larger environment. But with agriculture, it's non-point. It comes from everywhere. I mean, where do you, and, and where do you measure one farmer's level of pollution compared to his or her neighbors. Mm-hmm. It's an impossible task. So even if somebody could devise regulations uh, about this, it would, be, it would be completely unworkable. Unless what they, if they chose to expand on programs that would insist that farmers not plant along X number of acres that are X number of feet, yards, whatever, from, uh, from a stream or river. 
that would improve the situation. But it would never stand up in the courts because you can't have the feds telling individual landowners how to dispose of their land. It goes to this most Western notion of, uh, of, of people's property rights. But that's a very coercive approach. Is there another way? Um, yes. I look at what the farmers are dealing with. Um, they don't have market um, access. They can't do value-added agriculture. They can't sell their own right. seeds. I mean, this is all through through the large corporate oh, yeah. influences. Oh, the, the, the seed aspect is another... That's another topic. I mean, you write another whole book but, on that. But it, it goes further than that. You know, it's there's so many aspects of that where they're just limited as to what they could do. And what they recoil at is not being able to call their own shots. If you could take it from a different tack, you know, we're seeing wineries now. We're seeing breweries. There's ways to make that more profitable. Mm-hmm. But these are niche markets, and they need more than that. So, in essence, and what you're suggesting then is is that you like a market-based approach yeah. to improving the police yeah. environment. Let me take let me throw another one at you and see what you and your listeners think about this. And it's another technological solution, but this one actually may come to pass. Perennial wheat that might do it. I mean, I that that whenever that gets figured out, we could see a very different Palouse in terms of water quality. Now, 95% of the Palouse is still going to get put to, to big ag use, but I think that most people would agree that a perennial wheat, something mm-hmm. you don't have to till up several times a year and replant, leave fallow, that, that, would, that, that everybody oh, yeah. would like that outcome. At least to try it out. That would, it, it sure would. So that's, I guess that's my, my brightest hope for the future, uh, ironically enough, <laughs> is that the problem to a technological conundrum is more technology. That's true, although there's sure a lot of resistance along the way. And Yeah, I don't see any other way around it. Until then, though, and I now live on the opposite coast, I, I'm a, a resident of the swamp, but the, there's just nothing like the Palouse. And I, I'm, I'm talking to people who are already converts, mostly uh, all your listeners live there, but it, it's captivating. And I just... I, I I, I wish I could have stayed, but that's another story for another time, too. But it's it's magical. That's why landscape artists and photographers are just drawn to the area. Get on top of Kamiak Butte. Yeah. Have a look. Get on, you know, on the buttes south of Moscow. It looks great. So you're looking at technological solutions, but also market solutions. And is that all we've really got? Oh, well, I, I just I, I just think that you can check regulations, that you can check that box as, as being unworkable just because of these deeply held conservative ideas about land ownership and what you are able to do. And there, what I don't see in the Palouse among the big growers is any sense of, of land stewardship. They consider land stewardship being anything that produces more bushels per acre. Yeah, they do, but what we've got is we've got this very limited marketplace, and oftentimes those um, acres are rented, and when they rent it, rather than owning it and rather having a family business where they're trying to continue and, and keep the equity in their their land, you know, they're just mm-hmm. renting it, leasing it, getting the maximum out of it. I'll see straw taken from wheat still. You know, you see these big bales of straw, mm-hmm. That's a lot of 
um, organic matter that's not going back and you know it's just not taking care of it. But they, yeah. if you're talking about the big guys, they don't do as much as the little guys. But the little guys can't, com- you know, can't participate. Yeah, that's that's true. One thing that has gotten better, believe it or not, all that stubble used to get burnt off every year. Ah, that is a lot better. <laughs> uh, well, and they did that recently in in the hayfields uh, outside of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where stopped doing it about ten years ago, I think, ten fifteen years ago, just because it was making so many people sick. But yeah, that the, the thing to do was harvest season over. Yeah, cut down. You, you've cut you've cut your wheat for the year. It's time to time to get the torches out and light fire to all your fields. I can't imagine what that looked like. I've seen it. Imagine what, seen what the air was like to I've breathe. It. And it's it's not good. Um, it, it's not a real good way to go. Yeah. But if people have stewardship of their land, and I don't know how you get people thinking that way unless they can own their own land and have some sense of being able to take care of it over time. It, it, and it's, it's hard. I, I don't know how those values get instilled. I'm, I'm the historian who looks backward, and, and we keep in doing environmental history, which is my subfield of history, you, you do keep one eye on the present, um, and, and we try not at all to think about the future, but, it, but I have anyway, just because of my, my own curiosity, to try to get at the questions that you're asking. And I, I, don't have, I don't have a good solution for how you change a culture. Don't. Don't know how it's done. Very slowly. <laughs> yeah, we can hope. It's been really great talking to you. Andrew, the, the thing that I, I really gleaned out of your book is you do look at the ethical issues and you look at the the ecology as yeah. a real ethical dilemma and it is something more to think about if people are interested in knowing more they really should read your book it's i want to just tell people more it's plowed under it's agriculture and the environment in the palouse thank you for writing it it's really pertinent to the people around here and i really really got a lot out of it well thank you for having me and i i don't often get to talk Palouse anymore and so any chance I get it's, uh, it's, it's a treat well I'll look forward to seeing what you do with the Department of Agriculture I have a feeling you've got a whole new pioneering career ahead of you I hope so, thank you thank you so much that's it for this show the Local Food Roundup is a production of KRFP Moscow if you want to hear this show again or any of our past shows just go to anchorfm.com and search for the local food roundup. We'll try and get it posted as soon as we can. And remember, local food may not be free. We sure can set you free. Thanks for listening. Oh, ho, ho, ho.